This is Product by Design, a podcast by Prodigy, where we explore technology, artificial intelligence, user experience, product management, and the philosophy of building products and companies. All right, welcome back to another episode. I am Kyle, and this week we have another awesome guest with us, Kevin Serace. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Super excited to have you. Super excited to talk about a number of your experiences. Let me introduce you briefly, and then you can tell us a little bit more about yourself. But Kevin is a renowned tech leader, entrepreneur, and innovator in AI, sustainability, and clean technology, among many other things. So I know that is a very brief intro. Kevin, why don't you tell us more about yourself? Oh, my. Well, uh, thank you for the intro. Uh, Oh, background. So I came to Silicon Valley in 1985 because that's where lots of people invent lots of great things. So so um, uh, me, like many other people said, this is this is just going to be a great sandbox to invent. And, and, And really, I found it a place where I could get up every morning and find real pain points and go solve them. And that has included many, many, many fields. Um, uh, including uh, doing building materials for a, a decade or more and uh, invented higher value windows and soundproof drywall, got to retrofit the Empire State Building, the New York Stock Exchange, thousands of other projects. That was uh, just just great learning and uh, just a slew of patents in that field that today have shipped billions of dollars of products. So that was certainly fun. But um, but I also started working on um, the application of AI. Now that's different. Let me separate that from the a, a developer of AI algorithms. So there are sort of two sets of people in AI. People who are developing brand new algorithms, and that is a fantastic field. And these people are wickedly smart. Um, and then and then there are people who look at those algorithms and say, how do I apply that? to my field or to a field that will change people's lives, right? And the application of AI is typically a different field than uh, the development of AI algorithms. So I have not been on the algorithm side, though I understand the algorithms. I've been on the application side. Applied AI is what it's called. And, and, and the first place I applied AI was at a company called General Magic, a very, uh, po- very popular company of, of lore, uh, and and there we invented the first uh, AI virtual assistant. Uh, Portico, my talk, magic talk. Her name was Mary. It became General Motors OnStar. Eventually, all of that technology got licensed for Siri and Alexa and pretty much everything else you know today and uh, the way we interact with these assistants. Um, and, and so we really had to invent how a person would interact with an artificial being, um, including what they would say and how you would respond back and, and sort of all of those things. And, and that led to all kinds of models, including, um, things like hidden Markov models to under, to, to, to at the time understand speech recognition in the best way possible and get what we call the rec rates up. But also how should she respond? In this case, it was a she. Um, if you ask her to marry you and ask her, you know, if she loves you and things like that, because people anthropomorphize these things immediately and, and it's all we know how to do. That's what we've interacted with most of our lives. So, um, so that's what we did. And in those days we had big rules based engines, uh, that, that did this. So basically it went off to a set of rules that, you know, matched a certain phrases or certain words and said, I think, you know, internally, I think what they're asking me to do is, is, you know, be their boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever. And I need to have a slew of responses around that, right? Or whatever, or if they swear at it or whatever. So, so that's ex- exactly what we did. 
And then that model became the model of the way Siri was built, was built on that model. And, um, and the rest is history. So today we have much more interesting uh, models and technology to use to accomplish the same thing and have many, many more diverse uh, outcomes or outputs, uh, as they say. So, um, yes, I've, I've, I've gotten to participate in, in so many different fields. Uh, online auctions uh, developed the first uh, multivariate uh, reverse auctions uh, for the web at a company called Perfect Commerce. Um, my partner in that business, uh, his name is Paul Milgram, went on to win the Nobel Prize for his auction theory, uh, which is unbelievable that, you know, you get to work with people like that in this business. Um, but in the end, it, it, it's me stepping back and saying, where can I make a difference? My in my, my latest two companies, one is a cybersecurity company, actually, which is a whole topic that we could spend hours on. Um, it is called Token Ring, and Token Ring is literally a ring you wear on your finger that is tied to your fingerprint. So if you lose the ring, if you don't have the ring, no one else can get access to your applications because the ring only works on your finger, and you have access only when you have the ring on. No ring, no access, closes the front door from Russia, Iran, North Korea, the kid down the street, right? <laughs> Nobody's getting, because with ransomware, people are coming in the front door. And, um, and we've left the front door you know, open, basically, with passwords that everyone can guess, uh, or I can just get on the dark web. So, um, and then I, I know some people are going to say, and I'll finish up on this piece is, well, what about MFA or 2FA? I hate to tell you, 100% of traditional MFA has been hacked, and it's quite easy to hack, 100%. That is that code that comes on your phone or something that comes on a pager-like device or an RSA, 100% have been hacked. Again, it's time for another episode. We could spend all day on that. But but um, now, look, you're probably safe with your bank account because someone's not coming after you for that one thing. But they're going into companies for ransomware, right? And it's because they're going into companies for ransomware that you can go across a thousand employees and get people just from a social engineering hack to actually give you the code. Literally. Oh, the code I got is 4321. Okay. You know, I'm in IT. I'm not a hacker. <clears throat> so, so there's that. And then, and, 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 and why is ransomware is a huge problem? Uh, you know, a, a 10, tens of billions of dollars a year problem now. So, so, um, I think that needs to be solved. And we got a, an amazing team in Rochester, New York, uh, building that company. The second one is, uh, AppVance. Uh, and AppVance, the, it's taken us a long time to really get the technology right and get acceptance. The vision all of 10 years ago now was that our software, all of the software that we use is getting more complex and harder to test. And we, what we've been doing as an industry is adding thousands and thousands of testers, both manual and scripters that write test scripts to test these things and trying to make up for it by hiring more and more people, basically. And what's happening is we're trying to collapse our timelines between releases so that we can do releases once a day or four times a day or once a week, whatever it is, and therefore testing less, not more. And then the users of our software are finding more bugs than they've ever found. So bug counts from users are going up. Quality is not getting any better. It's getting worse. So the idea was if we could cre create AI-based software to find our bugs for us, that's the game changer. And that's what we've been doing at AppVance. And we've got really all the patents in the field, and uh, it's been going great. 
we launched the product uh, about four years ago, four or five years ago, and um, it's a game changer. So there we're leveraging AI. We had the first generative AI, not, not based on a transformer model, but a different set of models back in uh, 2017, 2018. And now we've got uh, transformer-based models that do some other things. And it's a game changer. It, it will find bugs that you would never find and uh, raise awareness. So I've gotten to participate in the application of AI all the way through some others we didn't get to mention. Um, so, so that's, you know, a tiny little hint of some of what I've done. Um, 94 worldwide patents. I, d- I don't know if I'll get to 100. Seems daunting. Uh, that does seem daunting. But when you're so close, it almost feels like, you know, why not go for 100? Maybe that's just kind of random, but you know, you have to have an invention that is worth patenting. You know, there's lots of inventions and you go, this is an amalgamation of some other things and um, is unlikely to be patentable, but it's really, really cool and changes the world. So you still want to do it. Not everything, you know, is, is or deserves to be patentable. And then there's some things you do you don't want to patent because they're formula based. and You don't really want to tell everyone what the formula is. Yeah. And um, so these are the trade-offs in patents, right? Yeah, they are for sure. Well, you've touched on a couple of things that I, I want to dive into. But before I do that, I want to give you a chance to tell us about maybe some of the things that you like to do outside of the office when you're not you're working on AI or working on other you know products or companies. Well, um, thank you for asking. So <clears throat> the other half of my life is actually uh, theater and Broadway and film. And uh, uh, which is really interesting. And people say, how could you possibly do both? Well, one, I try to try to invent even in those fields and try to reinvent how we say, get a show to Broadway. Could we get there faster? That typically takes seven to 10 years to take a show from, you know, the beginning to where it's on Broadway. And then when you get to Broadway, you maybe got a one in 10 chance of being successful. So that's really hard. You know, could we collapse that 10 years and make it two years to get to Broadway, right? Could we rethink the, the model of how to get to Broadway? And, and we have rethought that by leveraging streaming and film and other methods to, to raise awareness of, of, uh, of a piece of intellectual property, uh, perhaps not filmed on stage, but, but, but filmed in other ways, uh, more, more or less on location and raise that awareness. And then if it's very popular, then it's an opportunity to take that to Broadway rather than let me take 10 years to get to Broadway and then another 10 years to get to film. That's a long way. So we are reinventing in those spaces. My latest movie is 1660 Vine. It's not available, but it's done. Uh, and we are, uh, for sale to a number of the streamers. So we'll see how that goes. We've won. 30 or 35 now film festivals. Uh, it is, uh, it's a film uh, about uh, influencers. And in fact, it stars influencers, uh, huge influencers that have 50, 60 million followers on, uh, on social media. So we went out to social media and found people who can sing and dance and have huge followings. And we got the best dancers and singers on the planet. And if you're in the social media world, the influencer world, you will recognize the names, right? There's Cheryl Porter and there's Chris Olson and there's Pia Toscano and all these people. So, so, um, so that was very exciting. The film is fantastic. It's really about influencers coming together to live together in LA, uh, all together to figure out how to influence more. And, uh, they're, by the way, they're doing podcasts on there and all kinds of things, right? And shows and, and, um, it's what they do. Uh, and, uh, the net result is there's some learning that comes from this. Uh, I won't give away any of the plot, but it's fantastic. The music is all written by 20 somethings. It's, uh, it's very hip as they say. So, so really fun, really, really fun. Um, and I've been involved in musicals and Broadway and theater 
pretty much my whole life um, as a percussionist, as a music director, I'm a conductor, and uh, as an artistic director at uh, Theater in Northern California. So that's the other half. And then there's the third half, which I get to spend with my wife and kids. Uh, that's a lot of halves. And- yeah, no reason to sleep. There's yeah. no, it's, 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 it's overrated. Uh, that's definitely true. I'm interested in, I feel like there's just a number of different areas that I, I want to touch on going down this, this idea of um, multiple halves and, you know, the technology side and the invention side and the Broadway and musical and movies. Um, how have you found that those two things interact with each other? You know, I, I know a lot of people have found that uh, cross pollinating ideas and and using, you know, different uh, hobbies or different interests often influences one side and the other side. And you kind of mentioned that a little bit, but for you, exactly. what have you found as far as you know, being able to leverage, you know, these multiple halves as you create in both technology field and the musical field in the you know movie field? Well, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, having, having run several companies, I'm not CEO of anything right now, which I enjoy much more. I'd rather be CTO and chair and other things really contribute on the technology, right? And the, and, the, and that and the strategy. Um, but for certain, I use the management skills that you build over time. And uh, yeah, 22, I was a horrifically bad manager, as one would expect, because there's no experience. You don't come out of school and somehow you learned to interact with people in a way that they want to rise you up. Actually, most of what you learn, they probably want to push you aside because you're, you know, a pain. But over time, you learn about EQ and those interpersonal relationships. And if you want to build new product, create new product, you're going to do that with a team. You can't do it alone. And you need that team, you know, to march over the hill with you, basically, right? Now, people in the army learn this, that, you know, you can't tell people to march over the hill and shoot them in their back if they don't. That's what the Russians do. Uh, That is not a successful strategy to win a war or even a battle. Um, The successful strategy is you know, they really, really want to follow you because you have those interpersonal skills and you care about them and you're teaching them and they're learning from you. And then when it comes to be, here's the tough one team, we're going over this hill and it's going to be really hard. And some of us are going to get killed and they go, we're all in it together, right? That, so you have to learn that. And so the long story short is, of course, I use that as a music director, as a conductor. And I find, you know, not all conductors have exactly those interpersonal skills. And, and it turns out if you want the best out of a musician, just like you want the best out of a product development specialist or industrial designer or whatever it is, right, or a software coder, um, you know, you have to bring them to your side, right? And you have to really focus on how do I get the best out of this person so that when they show up, they're excited to be there, they're excited to play that music, and they were so happy they were asked to do it rather than, oh, I begrudgingly went to this thing and I'm really not enjoying myself, right? And that's hard because you've got people of various skill sets. You got some people who might not want to be sitting next to the other person. You got all kinds of things, right? And you don't know what's going on in their life before they got there. So they have a big argument at home, but somehow you got to create that camaraderie in that, in that teamwork. And I'm not always perfect at it, but that's an example of taking something from the tech side over to the other one. <clears throat> Another example is what we've done in the film business to look at um, plays and musicals that are written for the stage and say, can we make a feature film and do so way cheaper than Disney could do it or someone else, but it's got to look that good. And, um, and, and, you, and you can with the latest tools 
and I mean really the latest tools. Um, but if you're up to speed on the latest tools, the amount of post-production you can now do in-house is unbelievable. Um, so you don't have to necessarily go to a post-production house. Um, the way you film, so for instance, we film our uh, movies, uh, our feature films with uh, multi-camera shooting, which has always been done, has been done for a very long time since Lucy uh, on television, uh, but it's rarely done in film. It's rarely done in film because the director wants that one shot and is going to take that, take a week to shoot this scene, right? We've got like two hours to film that scene. That's it. That's all you get. And so I've got to have multiple cameras at every angle so that I can capture what's going on. Now, maybe I don't need all of them. Maybe I never use some of that footage, but, but the point is, is if I shoot that scene three times and I had seven cameras, I would have 21 shots to pull from. Now, if I'm, filming uh with just one camera i'm looking at you if you blink at the wrong time the director says cut let's do that again don't blink there don't squint there don't look at the sun don't look and that's why you end up doing it well now if you blink i'm just going to flip to the other camera take a little side shot or back shot or over the over the shoulder or whatever so this is an example and it's one of many that we used in 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 doing these films it's a great example of uh, taking what we learned in tech, which is how do we make this less expensive, better, faster uh, than, you know, better, cheaper, faster than than other people are doing it. And, and it turns out for the most part, you know, the way we film movies has been the same for a hundred years, mostly. Right. And, 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 and so that means you got to find a director that wants to do it differently, that is accepting of doing it differently. We also often shot, um, three and occasionally four units in parallel in parallel. Well, your director can't be at all four. So you've got to have subunit directors and, and, you know, the main director can pop in, but just can't be directing all four in, in parallel. And so again, you've got to have a team that is willing to do that. You got a team of sub directors that isn't your main director, but they're willing to step in under the prime director and just take that direction and just handle that unit over there for that three minute scene on the elevator, right? Or one minute or 20 seconds on the elevator. You set up a scene on an elevator. It can take you, you know, an hour to set it up. And then it's only a 20 second scene, but it's got to be done right. So all of these things that we learned in tech, I said, what can we bring to the feature film business to rethink how we do this? And then how can we use that to drive this, what was written for stage, ultimately to a Broadway audience and to a licensing audience? And 1665 is already licensed, um, uh, available for license through a company called MTI that licenses to community theater and, uh, and regional theaters and high schools and all of that. So we blew that model out of the water, right? So yes, I do it using on both sides. Give me one more example at RIT. I'm on the board of Rochester Institute of Technology. And about five, six years ago, we started a performing arts scholars program. <clears throat> because here's what we found. It's much of the schools an engineering school. Uh, you know, maybe we got 20,000 students, give or take, and maybe half our grads are in the engineering levels of roles, right? And, and what we found is if you wanted to attract really the best engineers, potential engineering students, right, in the country, almost all of them were playing guitar, singing or dancing, whatever. They were doing playing drums, playing whatever. And they wanted to go to a school that gave them, didn't take that outlet away from them. And the problem with going to an actual performing arts school that has engineering as well, say Carnegie Mellon is, you're competing with the students who are actually in theater or actually in music. You're never going to, you're never going to do anything there, right? It's not going to happen. But at RIT, we don't have degree programs 
in performing arts. They are meant to be there for all the other students in the other programs to participate in. So you can get in a show, you can do a show, you can play guitar, you can be in four bands, you can sing a cappella. You know, we have, I don't know, 28 different performing arts groups, right? Uh, we're building a performing arts theater. And we found now the data shows us that indeed those are the highest performing students in engineering that we have. Those who are playing guitar, I'm picking on guitar because I see two beautiful guitars behind you. Uh, those who play guitar turned out to be the best engineering students with the highest grades and the highest graduation rates. And so there is this sort of left brain, right brain. And those who are using both sides of their brains somehow end up being the best students we graduate. It's really, really fascinating. But in some ways, I, I feel like not surprising where having like these multiple outlets, kind of like you're talking about, really benefit either from you know having a chance to use another skill set or really being able to apply a lot of the same thinking into other areas, kind of like you were talking about, you know, taking the technology and management learning, applying it to to theater or to music or or other things like that. I think that that's fascinating thing and and something that I I have found that a lot of the you know not all of them but a lot of the highest achievers you know have these different uh skill sets and you know don't want to necessarily only focus on one you know they they need other areas to to be thinking about or to be uh even just taking a break from from sole focus on one thing and you know be able to apply some of those things in another so I I think that's fascinating yeah, I think, um, you know, we all became a, a little bit more aware of the term polymath because Elon started to use that about himself because Elon gets to talk about himself. But, um, but, but there are lots of polymaths that can look at a brand new field and say, I can apply what I've learned in these other fields to this new field and I can become, you know, a, a, a world expert in that field in a short amount of time. Now, it's hard to become a world expert in a field that's already got a million world experts in it. But what I find is like soundproof drywall was an example. I go, there is no soundproof drywall. So it won't be hard for me to become the world expert in soundproof drywall because no one else has ever done it. And um, you still had to go and read a ton of patents and meet a lot of people and understand what the what the pain points are and understand why the old methods didn't work, etc. But eventually that led to the invention of soundproof drywall of which I was the world expert, probably still am the world expert in soundproof drywall because nobody else wanted to make the thing, right? And they thought I was crazy. Why would you make a piece of drywall that's $50 when other drywall is, you know, $10? So because it's soundproof, almost no sound goes through it. Oh, well, I could do a soundproof wall. I could just put five layers of drywall on each side. Well, yes, that's more expensive, especially in labor. The majority of the cost of drywall is the labor to put it up and, and score and snap it and align it and all those things. It is not the cost of the drywall itself. So anytime you've got a product that gets rid of some labor, this is a good thing. It's a very good thing. And to some extent, in fact, I'd say to a great extent, that's what's happening in AI today, right? AI is, uh, we should get into AI because that's the big topic, but, but AI is, uh, you know, a lot of people have said, and I said for a long time, it's augmented intelligence, right? It's augmenting you or it's like your assistant. But actually, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm stealing this from my friend Reed Hoffman now. Uh, it's amplifying your intelligence. So if you look at it as a way to amplify your intelligence. So instead of having one brain, I could have five or 10 or 100. And it democratizes almost any field. I can now be an amazing artist, even though I cannot draw. I can imagine in my mind what I'd like to draw but I'm not able to draw that way or I'm not able to write music that way, but now I can. 
right? Because I can use these tools. <clears throat> so we're democratizing access to so many fields by taking your one brain and amplifying it and turning it into 10, 100, 1,000 brains. That is a whole different interesting way to look at it. Now, why is this important? It's important because we forever in our lives now will have a labor shortage in the United States. And this is a result of substantially lower birth rates over the last 30 years. So there's just no one coming into the workforce compared to what we used to have coming in the workforce. A very high retirement rate of baby boomers retiring very rapidly and uh, uh, an immigration problem that is never going to get solved by any Congress, I think. Right? We've tried since the 70s. It's not solved. No matter which side you go to, they think if we let more people in, they'll take jobs and whatever. So we're not going to solve that. Just take that off the field. So that means labor force is decreasing. The requirements are increasing. And here's the interesting thing. If you want to double the size of your company, like if you want to grow your company and double its revenue, the way we have done it for 200 years is we just double the number of employees, I could double the size of the company because I need to, if the productivity is the same, then I need to double the number of employees to get double the revenue. It's just the way it works, right? For most companies. There's a very few exceptions, but mostly it's that. Well, if you can't double your workforce because there are no more people, then what I need to do is make every single brain two brain power instead of one brain power. And if I want to triple, I'm going to have to make all of the brains I have in the company three brain power, right? Because that's all I have. I don't have any other choices. So now when you look at AI that way, you don't look at it as taking your job. You look at it, you can look at it as improving the productivity of you, your team members, and your company. And by improving the productivity, you drive revenue up and you drive profits up. Now people are going to say, great, then the boss is going to take all. It turns out maybe for a little while, but basically higher productivity increases company size, increases GDP, and increases wealth for everybody in the country. And it has always worked that way. There's a lag. There's no question. But as our GDP went up, our wealth as a nation went up and our individual wealth went up uh, as a nation, our, our per capita income. And yes, I, I understand. And I'm not trying to make a political statement. I know there's people left behind and that isn't fair. And there's all these things, right? But, but the bottom line is we are the richest country by every measure. Um, except for maybe Monaco or something, right? But we're the richest country by every measure because our productivity per person is higher, meaning our GDP is the highest uh, uh, per capita and it just goes on and on. So we're still, you know, larger output than than China or, or Japan or UK or Russia or anyone else, right? Uh, it's fascinating. So you absolutely want to double the size of everything we do and we're just going to have to double the productivity and that's where AI comes in. Absolutely. I think that the way that you're looking at it and, and I completely agree is the idea of really taking the ability of everybody and and expanding on that. I know as as we've looked at this just in a number of companies that I've been working with, you know, how is AI going to impact what we're doing, what everybody's doing? And in no case so far, and I know this isn't necessarily everywhere, but in no case has it been we need fewer people uh, to do the work that we're doing. In every case it's been we can now start doing a lot more that we wanted to do, but haven't been able to do. And that's let's right. Start leveraging these tools in ways that make everybody more productive and able to focus on the key things that are valuable and less on a lot of the mundane tasks and things that you know had to be done, but just were taking a lot of time. So kind of like you were saying, it's not about necessarily taking more people and adding them. It's taking 
the people you have and being able to expand you know, what they're able to do, which is, is so important. There are 10 million open jobs in this country right now, and we need to fill them with the people that exist because no more, the 10 million don't exist, right? <clears throat> so you need to fill them by doubling your brain power, by amplifying your brain power. And every company I work with, this is what we see is it's not that there isn't some manager, some CFO somewhere that goes, Hey, if I use all this, I could reduce. But immediately what they quickly realize is, hold it. I can increase our revenue by increasing our productivity. I don't, that's what I want to do. I don't want to cut our costs. I want to increase our revenue. <clears throat> and once they realize the power of that, they want to use it more. So great example, uh, Copilot for coding. Uh, Copilot's been out two years from Microsoft and, and um, it helps you come up with examples of code if you're a coder that might solve your problem. And with just a little bit of text, it starts writing out the code for you. And it isn't always right. And sometimes it doesn't compile. And maybe it's not exactly what you wanted. And you got to change the prompts. But but what it's done is those people who are using those coders who are using it are 55% more productive than they were without it. Now, it takes some time to get used to. And yes, sometimes it's wrong. But but it kept them from writing and trying to figure out this mundane logic as well as the syntax for say Python or whatever it is. And there it is. There's, you know, 42 lines of code that the machine wrote for you. Now you're still going to go through it and you're probably going to edit it and you're probably going to uh, customize it for what you want to do. And then you got to fit it into your APIs and a whole bunch of things, right? But the net result is we have the data now after two years. You are 55% more productive than you were without it. So I've doubled the size of my coding staff, but didn't lay off anyone. And I also didn't have to hire anyone. Yeah. That is a game changer for companies that are using it. It is a, I mean, with app fans, it's a game changer for every single company that has been willing to trust AI to find their bugs, a game changer. And once the AI is finding their bugs, they say, I can't, I can't believe it. And of course, what they want to do is think the old way. How do I know it's finding the things that I want to find? Well, did you train it correctly? Cause there's a training session. Uh, well, well, yes, but how do I know? Well, there's 5,000 tests that it ran. Well, I can't read all 5,000. At some point, you have to trust the AI, just like you trust the AI to write code or you trust. I mean, we've trusted AI for a while now to do a lot of things, facial recognition and speech recognition, other things. Right. And there's a there's a point you have to give it some trust and it is possible it will miss something. But but 99 percent of the time, it finds more things than your team of people would have found. And then this elevates the people that used to be sitting there mundanely manually testing or mundanely writing scripts. And it elevates them to say, now we've got time to create more test data. Uh, uh, think about uh, uh, broader test coverage, broader application coverage. Think about testing more of our applications. Think about doing backend testing, microservices testing. All that's a little bit technical, but the bottom line is overall, the quality improves dramatically and your people still have plenty of work to do. But they're not sitting there scripting and maintaining scripts mundanely. And that's a mundane task. It absolutely is. I completely agree. I'm interested in where you see things going from here. So obviously, you know, there's a lot of applications that we're we're using and we're able to apply. What are some of the next phases for this, for the technology that exists, the things that are, are potentially coming out in the future? Where do you see that going? Well, you know, the interesting thing is, um, is that we are in uh, a, a, a place, uh, a place right now that is, I think Gartner came up with it called the hype curve, right? <clears throat> and the hype curve has this very, very rapid ascent 
where um, everything is overhyped and the expectations are too high and nothing can move that fast and nobody can use it that fast and there's still bugs and issues, et cetera. We are in that hype curve on generative AI. Now we're in a reasonable curve for the rest of AI, but we're in that hype curve for generative AI, right? <clears throat> and um, and then there is this, uh, this whole uh, fall off of disillusionment where you go, oh, none of this stuff does anything it was supposed to do. Turns out it's probably doing 80 or 90% of what it's supposed to do, <clears throat> but now you're disillusioned. And so you overcompensate the other way and say, don't use the stuff at all. It's all terrible. And then finally, it comes back up into a solid growth territory. And that's frankly where all the money is made. Now, we did this with the Internet, right? From 1995 to about 2000, uh, overhyped, right? It's going to change the world and everything. And then it just got the promises were too big and it fell off a cliff and everybody got out of it, et cetera. And, and, and then... That was an overcorrection to the downside because at that moment in time, if you invested in something like Google, you crushed it or later Facebook, et cetera. So, so actually, um, that's where we are right now. We're in the, in the hype cycle and then we're going to go fall off a cliff to some disillusionment that does not say it's not working. It says that you, um, uh, you expected too much from it and it's probably only going to give you 80% of that. And then we're going to come back to this true growth where it's everywhere. Now, the best way I like to think of generative AI today is finally we have a large language model that we can do for language that the calculator did for math. You know, the calculator came out, the electronic calculator, it's in the 70s. It changed how we worked with math. And then after that, we had the spreadsheet in the 80s. And once we had Excel, we had Lotus 1, 2, 3 before that. But once we had Excel, it changed everything we did within a company. All that math gets done for us. We just put it in, put some formulas in. Anyone can use it. Boom, right? And so all those people who used to do these ledger lines and keep trying to add it all up and try to, you know, all of a sudden a machine did that. So we've had these models for math. And what did it do? It made uh, accounting teams far more productive um, where it elevated everyone in the team. By the way, it's probably just probably more people uh, working in accounting today than worked in accounting 30 years ago, the advent of these technologies. Um, and so they manage Excel and they manage, uh, you know, ERP system, they manage other pieces. Uh, but that's what we're doing now with language. So we've had this for math. We just didn't have it for language. We couldn't go somewhere and say, you know, write a 500-word a, a blog post um, about Kyle's podcast, right? We couldn't do that. And now we can. Like, I can literally do that. I might have to seed it with some information because, it, you know, at least ChatGPT stopped learning in September 2021. But nevertheless, I can seed it with some information and I can say rewrite this into a blog post or rewrite this into an ad. Or I can go to MidJourney or other places or DALL-E and say uh, create some graphics that demonstrates the following things. Or I can go to an advertising uh, a service that will generate these ads now, right? There's all kinds of services that are sort of based on these large language models and multimodal models. That is amazing. That's like having a calculator for language. That's all. Now, it's just math in the end. It's actually, I mean, I, I, at RIT and every other university, AI and generative AI resides in the math department. It's literally in the math. You get your PhD in AI from the math department. It's not science. It's not physics. It's not engineering. It's math. Why? Because it's actually math. It's all it is. I'm putting probabilities on uh, essentially on neural nets, on choices on the next word in a, in a phrase. I've learned phrases and I want to try to replicate 
decent phrases to respond. Those phrases could be code or it could be English language or some other language. I'm just looking at probabilities. It's just math. I think that's absolutely a great, fascinating way to look at it is the fact that we've taken numbers in the past and applied a lot of these tools to it. And now we're at a point where we can do something similar with language, with uh, visual graphics and pictures and things like that, which is another fascinating part of you know all of these different tools. How how do you see this changing? Maybe the way that we interact uh, as as people. So with you know with the advent or with the rapid expansion of a lot of these generative models, you know what does that do? Maybe not just in our work, but also in in our lives. In your perspective, right? Well, you know, we went through this uh, when we were inventing Portico, my talk, Magic Talk, GM OnStar. Right? Is that uh, how do people interact with the system? And then, you know, how does that start to impact them through their life? Right. Because again, people do anthropomorphize these things. And, and so that was the first thing to learn is, is how do people start to treat this assistant as an assistant? In our case, she could answer your phone and uh, schedule appointments for you and do things that you still can't do on, on Siri today. And that was the late nineties, mid to late nineties. Um, but there's other impacts on our lives. I have said uh, for the last more than decade, I think, that 50% of the tasks that we do would be done by AI in 2050. Hang on. Those are the tasks. I didn't say the jobs. It's the tasks. A lot of the tasks we do in our job are tasks that are best done by AI, and they're not good use of our time, right? So there will be some jobs who, who that is the only task. I'm going to give you an example of... Uh, of Nightscope, which is a, uh, a robot manufacturer for security robots in parking lots and malls and things like that. And it turns out that um, security in a mall at 3 a.m. or security in a parking lot at 3 a.m. walking the parking lot is both boring, mostly a waste of human ingenuity, um, and dangerous because you, when the security guard is walking through and does see someone breaking into a car, <clears throat> that's a dangerous situation for for him or her, right? That is not... Uh, a situation uh, that, that anyone wants to be in. And, you know, do they call the police? Do they confront these people? How do they, how do they deal with that? Um, and it turns out a robot is really good at that because the robot has no feelings about its self-worth. It's, you know, it's going to look, it's going to take pictures. It's going to call the police. Uh, it can't shoot them. It doesn't have a gun, but <clears throat> it can evaluate if they have a gun. It can evaluate how dangerous they are. It can evaluate if it's seen them before, et cetera. And then let the police come and deal with that because that's what the police are for. So that's a great use of a, of a variety of AI image recognition, um, you know, the ability to evaluate a situation, make the right calls. I love that. Uh, and that's an example where the job does get eliminated. It, that is true. Uh, but, but there are a few places where the job really gets eliminated. Most places the job elevates. But we're going to see this come into our lives more and more. Um, everybody wants uh, more than the Roomba vacuum. They want, you know, a chef that's in the kitchen cooking their meals. And that means they're going to have to be anthropomorphic because we've designed our kitchens for humans. So we can't have a machine do it. It's going to be a machine, but it's going to have to have arms and legs because that's how our kitchens are designed, right? It turns out that's expensive and complicated and hard and, 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 uh, but, but not outside the range of where we are going over the next decade. So we're going to see these kinds of robots. We are going to see more companion robots. There are examples of these in Japan already that interact with older people because they just don't have enough people to take care of the older people. And, um, older people like to tell stories. 
Sometimes they like to tell the same story over and over and over again. So it's best to tell that to a robot who will smile each time as if they've never heard it before, uh, where, uh, you know, a human might get bored and say, you've already told me this story. Please don't tell me a fifth time. Uh, so there's lots of uses that are going to impact our lives. But look, I, I just look at AI as uh, it's like how calculators impact our lives or, or Excel spreadsheets. We don't think of that anymore. In fact, we don't even think of how computers interact or changed our lives. We probably don't think of how the Internet changed our lives. But we couldn't have anticipated how integrated it became in our lives in 1995 when it was called the World Wide Web. Had I, had I talked to you, and had this been 1995, first of all, we couldn't have done a podcast remote like this. There wouldn't have been such a thing as a podcast. There's no way to cast it. But in 1995, had you and I sat down, we might have been a little younger, but when we, if we had sat down and I said, well, can you imagine in the future, um, you'll be able to, uh, from your pocket, take, take a device out uh, and uh, take a picture of me and literally put it out there where potentially a billion, more, a billion or more people could see that. And one minute later, um, order something, anything, probably anything in the world and have it and have it be at your house that afternoon, um, you would have said, this is great. You're crazy. Like there's, cause there's no way you could have imagined because all the pieces that had to come together, you know, at that moment we did have Wi-Fi, um, barely very slow, uh, mostly dial up, uh, and, and very, very limited kind of any kind of wireless communication. So, you know, we went in 1995, mostly from dial up modems to, you know, having very high speed Wi-Fi and very high speed cellular data. You could not transmit, uh, we transmitted very little cellular data in 1995. I know I had a company called Air Communications. We invented cellular data transmission. So we were doing that work. It was dead slow. Uh, so you couldn't imagine. And so we cannot imagine sitting here today how AI starts to get interweaved in our lives more and more and more than it already is. But it will be. You're going to go to the doctor and they are going to use AI at least to give them some hints of what might be going on with you based on you know, this set of uh, criteria. And I, I, and, I, and I want that to happen because AI has access to the latest research, the latest medical research, the latest peer-reviewed reports, right? Where a doctor might not have read one for years since they've been in school because they're busy doctoring. And I don't have a lot of time to read the thousand peer-reviewed you know, reports that are coming out daily. So this is so exciting, I think. Uh, that it's going to just permeate our lives. And in 10 years, if we talk again, hopefully sooner than 10 years, if we talk again, I think we're going to say, oh, it's just part of our life. Like the automobile is part of our life. It did change our lives, but once we had it, we go, it's just part of my life, right? Um, just like the calculator or Excel spreadsheet became part of our lives. And it changed our lives for the better. And the internet changed our lives. So we can't imagine living without the internet. In fact, we stop working now without the internet. It's that intertwined, right? It's that intertwined. But what it won't be is it's unless someone hooks up a large language model to our nuclear arsenal, it's not going to kill everyone. It's just a language tool like we've had math tools. That's it. Yeah, I think that is a great, great point. And I mean, I had my Internet uh, go out in my house a few weeks ago for about a day and it literally brought everything to a standstill. It's the kind of thing that, like you said, it doesn't you don't really think about it until it's not there. And then you realize like literally our whole lives kind of are intertwined with this technology now. And that's right. Likely to see a lot more of that going forward, that our lives will be just more and more intertwined with these technologies in a way that 
becomes almost the norm. It, it's no longer a, a, a new novel thing out there. It is just part of our work and our lives and is adding value and, and ultimately, like we said, augmenting and amplifying all of the things that we're able to do in a way that is probably difficult to, to imagine at this point. New things come into your life and they very quickly become commonplace to you. And I'll give you an example. We've all moved into a new home or a new apartment. And at first it's like, I've got to unpack. I can't find anything. Where is everything? And they, oh, it's so cool. I love it. I, you know, I, I don't know. A few weeks in, you forget how amazing it is, how you love the layout, how you, and, and now it's just where you live. It's just commonplace, right? In the microwave, you know where it is. And the, and this is true with every technology as well. It's just what humans do. At first, it's so new, you're blown away by it. And within weeks, it's just what you do. Uh, and, 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 and that's what's happening with AI. That is what's going to happen. So if, 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 if you are a coder and you've been using Copilot for two years, it's just how you do business. There's not, if you go up to them and say, well, how do you like Copilot? Oh, I, well, I use it all the time. I've been using it for two years. What's the big deal? Right. It was better than searching for code, which is what I used to do. I searched on GitHub or other places, right? Stack Overflow. And now it writes the code for me. And th that's what I do. So if you're a marketing content writer, no, you're not losing your job. You're going to, you're going to write five times more content than you've ever written. And you're going to do it with the help of a GPT or, you know, a transformer model or chat GPT or Jasper or whatever one it is. And that's just part of your job now. And those who've been doing it for six months, they just use it as a tool. Those have been using Midjourney or, you know, generating or Dall E to generate images, for example, for PowerPoints, which I do for my keynotes. Um, a lot of my images are now generated by that. One, they draw better. Two, um, I don't have to hire an artist. It's not about hiring the artist. It's not about the money. It's that I have five images in front of me in one minute. If I go outside to an artist, that's going to take a week. I don't have the week. I need to know in five minutes. I put it in. I move forward, right? So, uh, so all my work is better. All my keynotes are better. Everything I'm presenting looks better, sounds better. It's, a, it's totally amazing. I've replicated my voice with AI. And, um, and now if I wanted to hear me reading a book, I just have to give it the text and it will read the entire book with my inflections and everything. It is freaky. Uh, and we've never had that before. And I, so what does that do? It probably means that many authors will not actually have to read their book. They will build a model that takes 20 minutes or so from a, you know, using AI of their voice and it will be their voice reading their book, but the publisher will just feed the text in. They won't go to a studio for, you know, six days to record their book. Um, there's a machine that will immediately, literally in under a minute, give you that book back in their own voice. It's going to be absolutely incredible to see a number of these applications as they start to come out and how they change the way that so many things that we commonly think of now, uh, you know, and how they save time in such an incredible way. I, I want to touch on, you know, you, you've mentioned a number of the things that you're currently working on and the things that you've worked on in the past and invented and these products and companies from soundproof insulation to, you know, better security than multi-factor two-factor authentication mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. the automation of uh, testing and test cases. How do you think about, you know, what problem to solve? Because obviously there's a, a lot of problems out there and a lot of things that you're working on or coming into contact. You know, how have you gone about in the past looking at, you know, this is a, a problem I want to solve or something that we can, we can build and make better. And, you know, how, how have you come into some of those things now with the companies that you're currently working on? 
It's a great question. Uh, it's always about solving a pain point. So you have to find a pain point. You have to find a pain point where there's a large enough market that can do something with it. Uh, you know, um, that's not about making money. It's that if it's not a large market and you've solved a pain point, then you really haven't solved anything because nobody's buying it, right? So lots of people solve this you know, great thing at home and they go, look, I solved this pain point. Well, maybe nobody else has the pain point or maybe you don't know how to market it and build a company around it. <clears throat> but the fact of the matter is, is uh, whether it's business or nonprofits or climate change or whatever, if it's not accepted by the millions, then it, you didn't move the needle in humanity. So if you're going to move the needle, you're going to have to do something that is accepted by the thousands, the tens of hundreds of thousands, the millions, the billions, right? And um, clearly, you know, the iPhone did that. The iPhone went after a number of pain points and, and did exactly what Steve Jobs knew how to do the best, um, which is convenience. If I can give you all these things, solve some pain points, but, but make them all so convenient that um, you'll use this device all the time, <clears throat> that's a game changer. Uh, disruptive innovation works like that. An example is the camera phone. Uh, the camera phone was invented, um, you know, 25 plus years ago by Philippe Kahn, a friend of mine in Silicon Valley. And uh, Philippe had a real pain point. He was having a baby <clears throat> and he wanted people to see the baby right away. He had no way to uh, get a picture and send it because <clears throat> there was no way to do that in 1995, 96. So what he did is he really cobbled together a phone and the serial port on the phone <clears throat> and some sort of a camera and sort of got it to work so that he could transmit a photo on a phone. And so he made a camera phone out of pieces and parts. And then he smartly patented that idea of a camera with a phone. And um, that ended up to be an incredibly good idea because everybody had to license that for a camera and a phone. Now, the first picture, I have examples of this very first, very first picture ever taken on a camera phone. They're terrible. Yeah, yeah, there's sort of an outline. It might be a baby or it might be Kyle. I'm not sure who it is. <clears throat> but it turns out that was a brilliant idea for convenience, right? That brought the convenience of photography to everybody. And um, that was not going to disrupt anything on day one because the quality wasn't there. But over time, it has gotten better and better and better. And then software got involved, software-defined imaging, and then AI has gotten involved. And now the images you can get on your phone by taking a picture Absolute, absolutely democratize high-quality photography, very high-quality photography, so much so that nobody's using a DSLR unless they're shooting a wedding or, so, you know, model photography, something very specific where you really got to have all that control. Um, and in fact, it was still up to five or 10 years ago, we all took a DSLR or something like it with us on vacation. You know, when's the last time you grabbed your DSLR and took it on vacation? I mean, on, you know, an iPhone 14 crushes it. I really don't need anything else. And even if it's not quite as good, it's convenient. It's in my pocket. I don't have that five pounds hanging around my neck. So if I'm Canon and I'm, and I'm Nikon, the camera phone came up from below and eventually ate my market, killed the market. And they both had to go into medical technology and imaging and all kinds of other things to survive, right? They're not going to survive on selling DSLRs to wedding photographers. Uh, that's just not a big enough business. Um, so, so there's an entire business that I got, got eaten from below and, and Kodak would be one of those as well, right? You know, the digital camera, just even though they had all the patents on the digital camera, just ate their lunch uh, because they didn't want to participate or couldn't participate in that business in the right way. 
And eventually, you know, nobody actually needed to develop or, or even print many photos because we're going to share folders on Facebook and other things. Uh, so look, you got to find pain points uh, that could be convenience. It could be a legal problem like soundproof drywall was. Uh, every builder was getting sued who was building multifamily units because they couldn't build them soundproof. And I said, I have a solution for this. And then every multifamily builder used Quiet Rock after that because that's what you use. That's soundproofing drywall. So you, you look, look for pain points, look for your brick wall. What's a brick wall? In Silicon Valley, we always say, you know, we're coming up with something that looks like a brick wall, which means you have to be able to walk through that brick wall. And to normal mere mortals, you say, I can't walk through a brick wall. That's impossible. But of course it's possible. I can guarantee you, you can walk through a brick wall. Now, you may need an hour or two to go to Home Depot, buy a chainsaw, put some gas in it, come back and chainsaw a hole in the brick wall and walk through it. But given the right tools, you can walk through a brick wall. It's not a physical problem. It's a tool problem. It's a time problem, right? So you need to time, money, and tools. And so I look at all these problems as time, money, and tools, right? Like my my good friend who's been CTO for me and, and really brilliant, his name's Gary Lang. Um, and he's been with Amazon and Microsoft and you know a number of big companies as really a lead technology thinker and doer and executor. Uh, every time I'd say, oh my goodness, this seems, you know, it's software company or SaaS company. This seems impossible. I don't know how anyone would design that. And he goes, no, hang on. In the end, it's just a simple matter of coding. And you go, you're right. It's, if it's just code, it's never impossible. It might be a million lines. It might take a big team, but in the end, it's a simple matter of coding. So if you look at it that way, you go, okay, now I can come up with a, a tractable solution, right? I can design a solution. Then I can say, well, I need this kind of team and maybe I can outsource, whatever, whatever. So never look at these things. And I, and I see this in all my companies even today. You know, people are often quick to say, well, that, that, that's a, that would be impossible. Well, hang on. It's just a simple matter of coding. Now let's decide what simple means. A week, a month, a year, Right. And then this is true with most products and most most of these problems is if you're not breaking the laws of physics, then I'm going to tell you it's probably doable. You know, if you say I want to build a time machine that may break the laws of physics, we're not sure. There's some question about that. <clears throat> the math would suggest it may be possible. But who knows? Even Einstein questioned it. Right. But but generally, we're not trying to break the laws of physics. Uh, you know, I I want to go to Mars and I want to be there in 24 hours. Uh, the physics, as we know it, I, I can't do that. Right. I don't I don't have that. I don't have the technology. There's not even the technology in sight. But generally speaking, soundproof drywall, AI virtual assistants that are very human like, you know, um, these very complex uh, uh, systems to do multivariate reverse auctions. Um, you know, finding bugs by a machine instead of people, um, solving MFA and cybersecurity. All right. Those are all interesting problems and they're very big problems and they need to be solved. Um, getting to Broadway in two years instead of 10 years. That's an interesting problem. By the way, I want to test if it's going to be a successful show because if it's a successful movie first, it will be successful on Broadway. If it wasn't a successful movie, well, that gives us an indication that maybe it shouldn't go to Broadway, right? So there's lots of reasons to do these things. They all stem from the same curiosity of, I'm curious if I can solve this really major pain point for people. And if I do, would they like to buy something from me? I think that's perfect. The idea of the curiosity to look into what are some of these things and then 
really solving a problem, which I think is the most important part is, you know, you can have so many good ideas, but if they're not actually solving a, a significant problem, then it's, it, it's just that it's a great it's idea that. that, yeah, it doesn't, isn't going to necessarily help anyone or go anywhere well, or, or become the, a product or a business. This, this podcast is product by design, right? And, and here's the thing about designing products. If, if, if I may say, I have seen more companies Look, I've got this really cool thing. I go, and who would want that? <laughs> you know, that is a solution looking for a problem. There is no problem. This is like the that desktop juicing company that went out of business, just an example, right? And and you could buy these packets and you could, you know, make juice from the packets. And I go, is juice a problem? I mean, can't I get unlimited juice at wherever you are in the country, Safeway, Kroger, you know, Whole Foods, whatever, unlimited juice in stock. And many stores, 24 by 7. There is unlimited juice available to me. There's organic, inorganic. There's 28 different flavors. There's blends. There's mix. Like, this problem was solved 100 years ago when we figured out the distribution of juice in refrigerated cartons. And by the way, there's frozen juice, okay? So, like, the problem was solved. And they come out with a $350 machine that you buy these packets <clears throat> and it squeezes the packets and adds water and makes juice out of a concentrated juice. I go, well, first of all, if you want concentrated juice, you could also just buy frozen juice. It's already concentrated, add water. And then the second thing is, is that people found out they didn't need the machine. They could just buy the packets, so, you know, literally squeeze it into something with water, shake it up, and they had the juice. But, but in, at no time did they solve a problem, not even convenience. They didn't even sell convenience. I can buy all the juice I want around the corner. Do I need to make a gallon of juice this minute that I can't get in a car and or I couldn't have planned it or, or I don't have any frozen, right? So a very good example of VC hype cycle. They got all excited about, oh, consumers are going to do all these things with these little machines and there's juice and there were a bunch of other things. And, and again, you, you, didn't, you didn't solve any problem. There was no, there was no pain point. Nobody said I got a pain point. I can't tell you the number of companies. And look, these are smart kids. They're usually, I say kids, but they're smart young people just out of school, just graduating from whatever university, great universities. And they get, they get all excited about something and they go and do this. And their chance of success is only about one in a thousand at that stage. But they're sure that they're changing the world with this. And, and they bring it to me and I go, whose world are you changing? You know, they're going to change their world if they're successful, but they're not going to be successful. There's no pain point. So always think of the pain point and then always say, is it a big market? And, 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 and never think that your product, you know, solves some pain, but go out and talk to people and actually find out if there's a pain point and actually find out they're not going to design your product for you or else they'd be working for you, but they can tell you where there's pain points. They could tell you if you what they want and they really needed something more convenient. So yes, if you said, Hey, if I could bring you your email and your voicemail, and access to the web and texts and do so in one device in your pocket. And you could even play games and this and that. And it wasn't too expensive and it was incredibly convenient. And the battery lasted all day. Would that be interesting? And most people would have said, wow, I couldn't have imagined such a thing, but that would be interesting. That, that solves some pain points for me because I'm away from my email and I can't get to it till I get to my desk and I can't, you know, whatever. Okay, cool. Right. Um, Hey, I have this thing and it'll make juice on your counter. Why? <laughs> Why do I want to make juice on my counter? Can't I just have, 
frozen juice and make it on my counter. Yeah, but this is packets instead. Why is that better? Am I out of room in my freezer, right? So I think people, had they gone out there, they would have learned that there was no problem they were solving and no one perceived juice on the counter to be a problem, right? Yeah. Um, I'm picking on that because it's it's now that we look in hindsight, you know, <clears throat> it's a little bit like pet food by mail when we had pets.com, you know, 20 years ago. And of course it went bankrupt and spent billions of dollars. Um, it, 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 it turns out that large bags of dog food, dog food shipped one at a time to your house. The shipping was more than the dog food. Um, there is a convenience factor a little bit. And yes, there's some people from Amazon probably do order big bags of dog food and, and Amazon has been able to get the shipping costs down by having local warehouses and things, but pets had one warehouse and they were ship all from this warehouse across the country. And so, you know, that 50 pound bag of dog food that was going to be call it 50 bucks in the store was now $185. It turns out that didn't really solve a pain point. And by the way, all the dog food I want is literally around the corner. Uh, and, and I didn't need to spend three X the time. So, so all of these, I suggest people working on products really go out and talk to your audience and make sure that they go, you're kidding, right? Like that's going to be available. It's, I, I have to have that. That is a game changer for me. And I'm working on a, another company called Penn Performances in the entertainment space that's, that's literally targeting high net worth uh, homes, high net worth individuals. Did you know there are about $100,000 million home theaters in this country? That'll put things in perspective for you. Million dollar home theaters, about 100000 And they want access to a whole other level of entertainment that doesn't exist today. And so we're working on kind of channels that are really for them, right? Very, very uniquely for them. And they'll have some equipment and, and like they will be able to have things and experiences that no one else in the world has. And they can afford that. They can afford it. How do I know? They have a million dollar home theater. They can, they can afford to spend more on entertainment than, and just, you know, it's not about the watching the Netflix thing because everyone else watched. I want, I want something different that's just for me. So, so there's all kinds of interesting niches as well that are really big pain points. And, be, and as we've researched that for two years, we spent a ton of time with actual people in their homes and looking at, here's what we're looking at. Here's the catalog. Here's the kind of entertainment. What would you do with that? I want it now. When can you install it? You know, that's the kind of, that's what you want to hear back. Like, I want it now. I need it now. I'm going to invite my friends over. I can use this five times a week. Now, in reality, they'll probably use it once a month. Doesn't matter, but you get the idea. Go out and do that research and make sure there's a real, real pain point. And I think that's perfect and could not agree more. I think that's one of the most important parts of developing a company, developing a product, really developing anything is that customer information and solving a real problem. Kevin, this has been an absolutely incredible conversation. Uh, before we wrap up, though, is there anything that we talked about or didn't get a chance to talk about that you want to add? Uh, well, we could be here all day because there's so much more to talk about. Disruptive innovation, how to build a disruptive innovation culture in a company. The, you know, that's, that's one of my keynotes, right? Um, I do 40 or 50 keynotes a year. They're almost always to, uh, um, uh, you know, commercial companies, almost always. Some are government, but mostly. And, uh, uh, and uh, of course, it's about innovation and product development and solving pain points. And today, AI, of course, if you want to talk about AI, how's it going to disrupt my company? How's it going to help us do what we want to do? Uh, and, and uh, you know, that's the field I enjoy. I built these companies. I've run them. Um, I've made them all disruptive uh, in their fields. 
and uh, been able to do it in multiple fields. And there's a process to do so. Uh, too long to get into the whole process in this uh, on this episode, so maybe another time. But but um, you know, look, building companies is a lot of fun. Uh, I will say this: if that's what you want to do, you want to go build a company, brand new products, all of that. <clears throat> you know, you have to be okay with failure because statistically, most of the time you fail. Nobody wants to hear that, but those are the stats. Just is what it is. And 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 the second thing. Is that, but you have to believe you're going to be successful, even though, you know, you could fail. And the second thing is, is usually it's the fifth business model or product that's successful, give or take. It's not the first one. So don't hang on to your ideas that hard. No, I'm, and I've seen so many founders all across the board. I don't care if it's food or delivery or it doesn't matter, right? Retail, restaurants, uh, technology, they hang out. No, no, I'm sure I'm right. The market's going to eventually come around. I don't know if you're right. If you're right, the market would have said that, right? And so um, be willing to listen to the marketplace and keep adapting. Um, startups and products fail only for one reason. You know what that is, Kyle? What is it? They run out of money. That's it. Everyone thinks, oh, it's a product market fit. It's a, no, no, they simply ran out of money. Because if you didn't run out of money and you were willing to try again, you would keep iterating on the idea <clears throat> until you got closer and closer and closer to what someone wanted to buy. And if you have five iterations on that and, and you're listening, you will have something that someone wants to buy at that price point. You, you will have made your way there, right? And you will have found where the pain point was. You know, the inventors of Slack were trying to do games and they found out nobody wanted their games, but they were chatting on the side in this Slack thing. And Slack turned out to be, you know, the biggest communication boon in corporate America ever. And um, it had nothing to do with the fact they started out as a game company. It turns out they, it was a terrible game company, but this chatting thing was a really good idea. Um, and fortunately, as they nearly were bankrupt, they listened to their market and said, how about we just productize that part and get rid of the games and see what happens? And the thing just took off, right? So those, those are, but for every one of those stories, there are a thousand stories where founders or product owners or whatever did not listen to the market. And they insisted, no, the world really wants pink Kleenex. Actually, they, they don't. And that's okay. What do they want? You know, let's listen to what they want. Let's find out what they want, right? Um, so I, I encourage you to listen. I encourage you to be okay with having five iterations of the product, not tiny changes, but may, maybe wholesale changes. Wholesale, you were wrong. Doesn't matter. You got to come and don't run out of money. Because if you run out of money, you close. It's not about time. But now if you're, gonna, if you're worried about running out of money, it is time, meaning that you actually have to cycle quickly, right? These cycles have to happen quickly in weeks or months, not years. Can't wait a year and say, oh, I was wrong. You know, you need to know you were wrong four weeks in, six weeks in, eight weeks in. So you're churning this, you're turning that wheel very, very, very quickly, right? Very quickly and get that feedback and turn it again and get the feedback until people go, you're kidding. Like, when soundproof drywall and I was inventing it um, and, and going out and talking to contractors and things, they didn't like the price, but they did say, if you've really got drywall that's soundproof, we, we're going to use it in every project because I don't want to get sued again. I don't want to get sued again. That was the pain point. I don't want to get sued from homeowners that come in and say, I can hear my neighbor and I spent $500,000 on this condo. I hate the builder. And they end up in court. <clears throat> and one of my first customers had been in court so many times. He said, I don't care what the darn thing costs. I will add it to the cost of the project 
and it'll be, you know, it'll increase the overall project cost by all of 1% or something. And we'll get our money back because we've got soundproof, uh, uh, you know, con- condos and townhomes and the other people don't. Right. So listen to your customers. They'll tell you where the money is. That is absolutely perfect advice. And we have, you've touched on so many awesome things. We'll ha- I think we'll have to do a part two at some point and dive into some, some more of these because there's obviously so much more to expand on, so much more of the internal innovation and company uh, changes that, that can be brought about and along with just a whole host of other things to talk about. But this has been an absolutely incredible conversation so far. And uh, I do have a couple of wrap-up questions that I, sure. I do want to, to shoot at you. But before we do that, where can people find out more about you, about your companies, about the things that you're working on? Well, the uh, my company's uh, appvance.ai uh, on the software uh, QA side, um, where we're using generative AI to find your bugs. And uh, Token Ring is uh, it's really much more for sale to enterprises than consumers today. But uh, you can learn about uh, uh, really hack-proof uh, technology that um, that doesn't allow people to get in and cause ransomware problems for you. Every company's had a ransomware issue. This is how you stop it, is the token ring. And then um, uh, if you type my name and type speaker, um, I uh, will come up at you know 25 different uh, uh, speaker agency sites. I'm booked through speaker agencies. They all book me. We know them all uh, from Big Speak to Washington Speaker Bureau to you, know, you name it. So um, uh, that's the best way to find me. I don't have my own specific website. Of course, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on uh, Twitter as well. And so you can definitely find me there on LinkedIn from a professional perspective. Awesome. Well, we will put all of those links in the show notes as well. Sure. So Kevin, uh, you know, we like to wrap up with a couple questions. Uh, you know, first off is, have you read or watched or listened to anything recently that you found particularly interesting? Doesn't necessarily have to be related to AI or business, but certainly can be. Right. Well, um, I am uh, just starting to read um, Reed Hoffman's uh, uh, new book uh, about uh, it's called Impromptu. And it's just uh, and half the book's written by ChatGPT or GPT-4. And um, I I think it's a great book because it's got hundreds of examples of interacting with ChatGPT. So it opens up your mind to what you might be able to do with these technologies rather than you know, it's, it's, it's telling you what to do. It just says, look at all the cool things I can do. Can I try this? Can I try this? Can I try this? Right. Um, so I, I, I look, I think that is, uh, if you want to stay up on technology, it's a great book. It's a New York times bestseller already. It just came out a couple of weeks ago and uh, reads, reads a smart guy and good guy. He, uh, founded LinkedIn and sold it to, to, uh, <clears throat> Microsoft. But, but the, the, the real backstory is he was part of the PayPal mafia and, um, you know, sort of came up through that with Elon Musk and the, and the other folks. Uh, um, so, um, has known the ecosystem for a very long time. He's a, he's an amazing, amazing venture capitalist as well. So I, I'd, um, I'd recommend that. I think, uh, if you really want to get an idea for what this stuff might be able to do for you. Great. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a great one. And finally, are there any products that you have been using or are using now that uh, you particularly enjoyed using? Could so, be digital so, or physical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so look, there are, there are um, in the AI space anyway, there are hundreds of um, products now that are leveraging large language models, uh, not just GPT, but many other language models. And, um, and, 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 and so I cannot use all of them, even though I try. 
Um, uh, you know, some of them are, it's super interesting. It works really well. I just don't know what the long-term application is. It's kind of interesting, but is that a company or is it a feature? Right. Um, I think, uh, ad creative, uh, is new ad creative.ai. Uh, it really takes the best of large language models and helps you create advertising in both for social in exactly the size that you need. It creates the visuals, creates the text, creates uh, social media ads. And, you know, every small business and large business has to create ads and ad creative is hard and lengthy and painful. Uh, it's never fast. And so I can have, um, you know, ad creative copy and ads really in a matter of minutes and look at them and say, I don't like these or I want more of these. So that's a great use of uh, targeted, you know, leveraging these large language models for a very targeted specific outcome um, that you have to build a lot of code around to get that outcome, but they've done that. So I, I like ad creative today, but tomorrow I'll like something else. It's adcreative.ai. I have no involvement with the company. I just think it's pretty cool. Perfect. Yeah. We'll put that in the show notes as well, but I agree with you. There are so many great companies and features that, it, that are coming out and it just, it feels like there's multiple new ones every day that that's right. Really addressing some of these amazing uh, things that they, that we can do with the new technology as well as real problems that they're solving, which is, is, is just fascinating to see. Exactly. Yeah. It's a fascinating time. I'd say as much as some people say, oh, it's scary and it's going to kill everyone. It's going to take all our jobs. No, I think it's the best time to be alive. Now, I might have said that 10 years ago and 20 years ago, but we have the internet, we have e-commerce, um, you know, we have, and, and now we have, we've had AI for 10 or 20 years in our lives, but you didn't realize it. But now we have generative AI and um, there's not a better time to be alive than now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that is a great place to wrap it up. Again, Kevin, thank you so much for all of your insights, uh, the, the stories and uh, things that you've shared. This has been an absolutely great conversation. Thank you, Kyle, for having me and asking such great questions. It's been a great conversation. All right. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks again for listening. If you like the show, be sure to follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can follow the show on TikTok at prodigy.co and on Twitter at prodigy.co. You can also follow me on both of those platforms at Kyle Larry Evans. If you want more product conversation, check out my newsletter Prodigy at prodigy.co. You can also follow me on Medium at Kyle Larry Evans or check out my Medium publication Prodigy. Of course, you can check out all these links in the show notes.